0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else.
0: The Final Fantasy Series. The history, where to start and Final Fantasy IV. This is the first part of a trilogy of shows that we have on three of our very favourite Final Fantasy games, 4, 6 and 7, with plenty of possibility for future shows, including my beloved 9. This year I finally got into Final Fantasy 6 and completed it, after a long time of trying, and we'll talk about that next time when I have an episode of just me and Maya, because Sharon has not to date played that, but it's on her list. And then, because at the same time, Sharon finally got further than she'd ever had on Seven, eventually completing it, so that show will be me and her talking about this very special, classic piece of gaming history. And after that, both hungry for more, the two of us dove into Final Fantasy IV and played it on two handhelds alongside one another, finishing it over the past few nights. We loved it, and for various reasons we will be going into in detail, we decided to make this one the first of the three shows, even though it is in fact being recorded third. I also elected to make this an introduction to the long-running and confusingly numbered series that seems almost impenetrable for newcomers. Where do you start? I've been watching a lot of Final Fantasy think pieces over these weeks and months, and retrospectives as I assemble my own list of which games I haven't played to really get my teeth into. Back in the day, I finished 7, 8, and 9 on the PlayStation, and then 10 and 12 on the PlayStation 2. Uh, This is the first time since then that I've really thought about playing any of them, and for good reason. Being a parent has meant I have kept my video gaming to a light minimum, always wanting to be present for my wife and child. And when we do play video games, it's stuff that the whole family can play. I didn't want to be doing Gears of War and chainsawing aliens' faces in half when Willow wandered into the room and was then traumatized. Also, this being a movie podcast, we have bonded over that for Willow's lifetime so far. Playing solo RPGs is antisocial by nature and it demands 20, 30, 50 or so hours of precious, precious time per game this is a perfect setup for teens especially if they are cash poor and time rich you get a hell of a lot of bang for your buck with that but we have been cash poor and time poor for a long while plus i have serious undiagnosed adhd and a work schedule that favors movies but now willow is a teenager. They want more time alone, which has given Sharon and I a little more time in the bank. On top of this, Sharon is in love with the Nintendo Switch, especially in handheld mode. It is her favourite gaming machine by a very long way. What's even the second, and where's it? how far is it trailing?
1: I, I, I can't even really say that there is a second. I would have said my iPad with some of the games that I've played on it in the past but they were a long time ago we're talking like Year Walk Monument Valley Papers Please that's probably the second
0: okay Uh, my favourite gaming machine I think remains my 3DS new 3DS XL specifically Mm. but the library and the form factor and the games themselves Just edging out ahead of the Switch.
1: Mm. I think what it comes down to is the Switch and the iPad are the machines that you don't have to nudge me to play. Mm. I will pick those up on my own.
0: As opposed to me saying, you have clearance to use this, here is the controller, it has batteries, go for your life. But if Sharon's on the Switch, I don't feel antisocial firing up the old 3DS or the Vita or one of my many retro handheld emulation systems. See our show about that. Then... To let you all in on a kind of worrying side of my life, my right hand, my editing hand, is getting twitchy and stiff, and my eyesight is also going, necessitating reading glasses for, what that say? Just a minute. Oh, fine-tuning, which means my usual obsessive fixation on creative work has actually had to be dialed back a little, giving me breaks to rest and do something different with my mind and my body. Plus, just so that I don't have the same repetitive strain from just doing that, squinting at the same thing and, and tapping the same mouse buttons over and over again. Um, that's why I'm... Uh, Uh, pivoting from uh, hard audio edits uh, at the moment to going back to writing this year. Just to give my hands a completely different thing to do. Plus, we keep hearing that friends got sick going on vacation, so that's not happening for us anytime soon. Ideal circumstances for exploring fantastical worlds. So recently I set myself the task of gathering dozens of RPGs from my extensive gaming collection and playing the opening hour of each one to get a feel for which ones have an aesthetic that i like characters dialogue storytelling music and of course combat systems now you could say how much can you tell about a game only playing it for an hour turns out a heck of a lot i have an escalating tiered and graded list that is making it clearer what i tend to like in a game momentum, instantly likable characters, gorgeous design, transcendent music, and a clever battle system that doesn't just entail me hitting A a million times for 40 hours straight. This project got me playing games I never would have before, because why start something so long if I don't intend to finish? So I have played RPGs that I otherwise wouldn't. So you could query the effectiveness of this as an exercise, but I think I maintained at the beginning I would rather play 100 RPGs for one hour than one RPG for a hundred hours.
1: Mm, absolutely. It, it enables you to seek variety in a field which is historically notorious for being somewhat samey.
2: Yeah.
0: And perspective as well. It's, it gives me something I can bring to the show rather than waffling on about one RPG for. A, if I've done it for a hundred hours, I may as well start a podcast just on that one thing the one hour rule gives each one a chance to sing for my attention supper and i can heartily recommend among others that i have never played before Tales of Vesperia, East Origins, Trial of Mana, that's both the original for multiplayer and the remake for solo play, Dragon's Crown, Dragon Quest 5, 8 and 11, Terra Enigma, Romancing Saga 3, Fire Emblem, The Blazing Blade, specifically the first GBA game, Lost Odyssey which I did play in the past but was impressed with on going back to, Radiant Historia, The Alliance Alive and Bravely Default. The spiritual successor to classic Final Fantasy. Meanwhile, Sharon found surprising affection for Battle Chaser's Night War of all things, Near Automata, The Witcher 3, and especially Nino Kuni. Playing a whole bunch of the Final Fantasy games figured heavily as a side quest on this project, and the release of the pixel remasters of the first six, along with various Switch, PS4 and Xbox remasters, and the imminent arrival of 16, which looks a bit like The Witcher and a bit like Dark Souls, generated a lot of interest in that series. So, like I said, I watched a lot of videos, I did a lot of reading, and I tried a lot of games, and I found... That a lot of the where do you start videos are so cautious about pissing off the fans by suggesting some games are maybe better than others in this series that they wind up landing on a wishy washy, it's up to you to decide responses. And you know, these are just my opinions, and no game is better than any other game, and empirically speaking, we cannot quantify. <laughs> Of course it's up to you, you come to the experts to narrow down that field, give you context and also fill you in on the best platforms to approach these. Detail, perspective, that's why you do this stuff. If you're watching stuff just to have your biases confirmed, you're watching wrong. As in, you've been playing Final Fantasy games for years and you're like, huh, huh where to start on Final Fantasy, this'll be good then. Let me tell you why you are wrong sir, it's Final Fantasy 11 or nothing.
1: Good luck with that.
0: There are a lot of games on a lot of platforms, and while I could noodle around talking about game mechanics and extolling the virtues of titles that play well, but are a little thin on plot and character, and it's like, oh, it all depends on what you like. If you like mechanics, then go for Final Fantasy V. I won't, because we are we here at School of Movies are in a unique position when speaking to our audience. You see, we know that you do care about characters and story more than just an emotionally empty combat loop delivery system. So rather than being vague, let us give you a straight answer to where do I start? And the answer is Final Fantasy IV. Quite simply, the first three titles in the series were Square trying stuff out. This fourth title, while by no means the best Final Fantasy, and by no means everybody's favourite Final Fantasy, caveat, caveat, your mileage may vary. This fourth title was when Final Fantasy became Final Fantasy. It has memorable characters who go through real arcs and are bursting with visual, spoken, and musical personality. That soundtrack there ranks with not only the best Final Fantasy scores, but as with a lot of Nobuo Uematsu, video games altogether, It has a sweeping epic story that goes completely bonkers by the end. It has momentum that grabs you and runs, rather than say, Final Fantasy VIII, where you start off in a school learning basic mechanics off a computer. No, learn them more. Learn the next lesson. Research via your computer. It will tell you about the junctioning system.
1: And if I don't care about the junctioning system? (laughs) Oh,
0: you'll care about the junctioning system. You have to. Now, let us tell you how to block. (sighs) Can I fight so I can... No!
3: You will burn off
0: computers! just read a guide. Is this optional or... No! It is not optional. You are being tested. Cool. Homework. No, it is schoolwork. You should be wearing your uniform. I don't know why he's talking like that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) And especially nowadays, that momentum I just mentioned is really important. It is not 1991 anymore. It is not the days following Christmas but before New Year with just us, age 11, with a Super Nintendo and fuck all but candy to eat. There are a million things vying for our attention now, regardless of our age. If we are in any way hooked up to the Internet, then something's trying to get our attention from birth now. These kids today, they get a... A little phone stuck in their clammy hand at the age of one, and then they start going bang, 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 and then just hitting what they like.
1: Are you saying we are the Ood?
0: No, maybe. Also, I don't know what you mean. I don't watch Doctor Who, so
1: <laughs> too much helps buying for your attention. Yeah, exactly.
0: That's established. I didn't just stop at one game to start with. I made you folks a tiered list, and at the top of that list are three games. Three games that are all excellent starters, not just Final Fantasy IV, two more. All three are, in my mind, the best places to either start playing Final Fantasy, or if you've played some or all of the more modern titles, they will provide you with a classic that exhibits the greatest strengths of the series. And those three, as you probably guessed, are indeed four, six. I would still suggest you all continue to listen to this show and the next two. Even if you're worried about spoilers, I would posit that we cannot spoil these games. 4, 6 and 7 rely on so much more than mere surprise which is what a lot of spoiler anxiety is based on. Fear that the impact will be lessened for you. It's FOMO, your fear of missing out on going, oh, but there were definitely times playing all of these games that I went, oh, and I knew the thing was going to happen.
1: Mm. It's it's how it happens more than anything else. To which I would say this, do you avoid watching retakes on Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet because you know how it's going to end.
0: And also the other rather large sizeable part of this, we can't ask you all to play three old ass games devoid of context. Put in well over 120 hours. Do it so that you can listen to our shows. That would be ludicrous. It would be too absurd an ask. Instead, listen first then decide which of the three feels best for you. And to keep this simple, I am sticking with only the numbered games in the series, not the spin offs, not the sequels, not the mobile games, not the side games. And the remake of Final Fantasy VII will not be talked about in depth on this show until the credits roll on the third and final installment sometime around 2026. Now, The next tier down below these three best starters is what I categorize as evolutions. I would recommend these once you have taken in all three of the top tier. And those are 9, 10, and 5. One of the where should I start videos put 10 front and center as this is the one to start with. And I actually wouldn't disagree with that for most people. Principally because of the four ages of Final Fantasy that 10 strikes a fine balance between. The four ages, different to the tiered list, it's more of a kind of a a, a history if you look at it from this perspective. We begin with the Mechanics Age, starting in 1987 with the release of the original Final Fantasy. These are the games where the story comes secondary to the combat mechanics. Final Fantasy I requires you to pick four unnamed blank slate heroes for different class or job types. Their job is warrior, black mage for offensive magic, white mage for healing magic, monks have less endurance than warriors but they hit harder, red mage for kind of a jack-of-all-trades master of none, that's your druid class from World of Warcraft mm. and thief for pinching things you take these blank slates through various fields and dungeons and fulfil a quest oh by the way apparently don't go with the thief like I did because I was like thieves are cool you can you can pinch stuff for two reasons one apparently the thief is very underpowered compared to everyone else but also two as with Final Fantasy 4 you can only hold 48 items in your inventory so it's not like Final Fantasy 7 where you just just pilfering all the time with Yuffie, and you just keep going down and down a list, the amount of times I was like, oh, I've got so much stuff, and if I give this all to the fat Chocobo, who's like a locker, then I'll be deep in a dungeon wishing I could get to this Chocobo and all of my stuff, and I need to re-equip with Ice Armor because I'm about to fight an ice beast, and the fat Chocobo is nowhere to be found. It frustrated me, so ultimately keeping your inventory quite lean for these early games because they just didn't have room on the cartridge to have... Oh, 49 things? Oh, no, that's too much. Final Fantasy II. Attempted more of a story but was still mired in character class. It also had a weird way of leveling up Which meant that you only got better in the abilities you actively use. And I was like, well, that sounds not so bad It's the same as Elder Scrolls, you know, you you read a book and it goes you have your reading has increased by one point But that doesn't work with Final Fantasy's turn-based battle system If you want your fire spell to get more powerful, you got to cast it a lot. You want to get more hit points. For endurance, you apparently have to get hit and die more. Oh, you want to be dying more, you won't get strong otherwise. Whatever doesn't kill you, or does, makes you stronger. You want to get good at hitting things with a sword? Hit things with a sword. However, the dev team did not foresee that people would hate this absence of unilateral non-topical levelling up, and that it would, weirdly, incentivize players to repeatedly cut off their own heads to game the system, thereby getting good at hitting things with swords and by getting good endurance. So you just turn up, commit seppuku, and then run away with the surviving dudes. I suppose you wouldn't actually get, oh then finish the fight, because otherwise you don't get the experience. Final Fantasy 3. And bear in mind, these games were launched within the space of two and a half years of each other. That is absurd. La- like, last game... Uh, we got... 16's being released this year. Final Fantasy XV was released in 2016. You know, the year everything started going wrong. Seven years ago. And before that, Final Fantasy 13 was 2010. And before that, Final Fantasy 12 was 2006, I think. But Final Fantasy 3 made the job system far more versatile, but it still punished you for switching jobs. So it's like, ah, oh, let's see if I take him in this direction. And it's like, well, you shouldn't have done that. Now you got to pay a penalty. Oh, cool. So you're de-incentivizing trying stuff out. Also, I, uh, I looked at uh, one review that kind of reduced it by removing all of the classes that are effectively useless. And it's like half of them. Final Fantasy V, did a really fantastic job of the refreshed job system but it is rather flimsy and a bit of has a bit of a silly plot so these were the early games that make up two-thirds that's four out of six of the initial wave made between 1987 and 1994 so that's the mechanical age one two three five then we've got the story age which is exactly what it sounds like. Games that hook you with the tale they tell. And on that list you have four, six, seven, and nine. These are the ones I think you, our loyal lovable listeners will get the most out of. Now it is notable that America didn't even get Final Fantasy two, three, or five. It was Japan who played through the bulk of the mechanics age. America got one, 4, and 6. The latter two were renamed 2 and 3 for that reason. I'm not going to call them 2 and 3 ever again because it'll just confuse things. Then because Final Fantasy 7 came along and blew the series up to immense cinematic CD-powered polygonal mainstream popularity, it ushered in the blockbuster age. These games are a little bit thinner on story and character depth. They have a lot of convolution, if it's talking about, say, Final Fantasy 13, Just ask someone to explain to you regarding Final Fantasy 13: What's a Lassie, what's a fal and what's a Cocoon, and what's a fal lacoon and what's a Coelacanth? You'll be asleep, or dead, before they've gone four minutes. The blockbusters all seem to have mechanics that are often seen as either obtuse or conversely oversimplified, and they are sold on their America-focused action scale. A lot of them are going out of their way to paper over the cracks of the turn-based classical Final Fantasy style, they're going, this is not what we want to be, which is why they feel like a major departure from those first two eras. So this is the blockbuster age, and it comprises 8, 10, 13, 15, and I'm gonna guess here, 16. As you can see, these ages do not run in neat sequential blocks. There is intersection and some have feet in multiple camps. I would say, going back to my original point, that 10 does have a place in the story age because it does have that in its favor. It's got a good story and memorable, lovable characters. But the fourth age is rather more nebulous and that is the MMO. Age. Begun in the 2000s as a result of the insane success of World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy XI was made for the PlayStation 2 and later the 360 in the massively multiplayer online role playing game Gold Rush of the Orts, of which only a few worlds still survive.
1: So I thought XI was on the Dreamcast, but obviously not.
0: Oh, you're thinking of Fantasy Star Online?
1: Right, okay. They were similar though, weren't they?
0: A Similarly powered system, yeah. Dreamcast and PS2.
1: No, 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 I mean the, those two games, Final Fantasy XI and Fantasy Star Online. I seem to recall they had some things in common.
0: They all had basic-ass quest mechanics and not too much character to them. Final Fantasy XII, however, was a solo game, but it had a battle system that eschewed the traditional turn-based routine in favor of effectively programming your companions to act like an MMO raid party, making it kind of a massively solo, offline, single player RPG. <laughs> then 14 released, and it was notoriously hated only to cleverly reshape itself into a genuine success story called A World Reborn. That is a fairly fascinating uh, discussion. Daniel Floyd did a really good. Sort of like he's going through Final Fantasy 14. He was like, uh, Is this going to be a good idea? as part of his streaming uh, channel. And he begins with a preface, a prologue explaining how a bad game became a good game. And that is worth seeing. However, I'm not putting 11 and 14 on this tiered list of what order to play this series because, I, for a start, I don't even know if you can play 11 anymore. You can definitely play 14 it's a big seller. But being online and MMOs, they require a completely different discipline, a completely different style and pattern of play. And it requires absolute dependence on other people. By all accounts, if you're intrigued, 14 is worth your time now, but you probably won't have much time to play any of the others until you're done there. So, Let's look at that tier list again. At the top, I am heartily recommending three of the four jewels of the story age 4, 6, and 7. Then the next tier down is the Evolutions. 10 is a story driven blockbuster available in HD remastered form everywhere and feels like a modern game despite being more than 20 years old. Though the leading lad Tedus is irritating the whole way through, and not just because he laughs like a crazed robot that one time. <laughs> It is a fantastic adventure that maybe feels a little too linear and lacks the world map of the gems in the top tier, which never really felt right to me, no world map, even though I played 10 for so long that I broke the 99999 damage barrier for half the characters. And I'm placing the job system focused 5 into this secondary category as well, the ones to play after your initial introduction 3 despite not having played 5 yet, myself, but we will get back to you on that one for sure, and 9 is worth saving for after your first wave, because when you look at the series from a great height, and this will be the theme of our eventual show on 9, it was the last of the traditional games, the final Final Fantasy. So having love for the series already is going to make that melancholy more potent. And it is most definitely a melancholy game, which is nourishing. So to recap, we have two dividing lists here. The ages of Final Fantasy and the order to play them in. The ages are mechanical, story, blockbuster and MMO. And the order categories so far are one, start with these. Two, move on to these evolutions. Under that is a third tier that I have classified the games people either hate or love. Because whenever you say how much 8 or 12 or 13 or 15 disappointed you, someone will step forward and assure you that this one is actually their favorite and that the game really opens up after the first dozen hours. These are all worth looking into, and notably they are the blockbuster age, but they are what Final Fantasy has become, not what made it special in the first place. These are not places to start. And at the very bottom is the mechanics age, the basic as hell original Final Fantasy, an NES game from 1987, then 3, which never got a Western release in its 2D, 8-bit style until the 2021 Pixel remaster, For this one I would actually recommend the DS and PSP 3D remake that released 16 years after the NES version, though bear in mind it is still at the bottom. And as cute as it may look, there are three Count them, three Bravely Default games on 3DS and Switch that look even better than Final Fantasy III Remake and take the job system mechanic and combat itself to brilliant heights. This is why I say they are the spiritual successors of classic Final Fantasy. They began as a sub-series called The Four Heroes of Light, which references the original Final Fantasy. That game wasn't particularly fantastic, but it was the prototype for what went on to become Bravely Default. The existence of Bravely Default makes playing Final Fantasy III a slog of a prospect by comparison. It's unrewarding by comparison. And finally, the last one on this list, Final Fantasy II, the black sheep of the series. Bad mechanics in the mechanics age, that's the one where you're encouraged to cut your own head off. And bad story, only a few years shy of the story age. It's the worst of all worlds, and if you look at loads of like Final Fantasy, uh, ranked lists and tiered lists, even though they're like pop articles, so many of them put 2 and 11 at the very bottom because of their massive underachieving considering the rest of their peers. Also because if you're making a list like that, you, you know you're fairly safe saying that Final Fantasy two sucks and no one's going to savage you for it. I, I heard someone say it was one of the most controversial JRPGs of all time. And I was like, it's only controversial if some people like it. And nobody likes to.
3: Hey, I like to.
0: So now that that's been established, let's talk about Final Fantasy IV and why it gets pretty much everything right and is disliked by almost nobody who has played it. That doesn't nec- again. That doesn't necessarily make it the favorite of everyone, but it's a game that loads of people play and go, you know, that was great.
2: That was great.
0: Really, really like that. And that's accurate. First up, let's talk formats. Now, if you're into emulation, you could probably do your own research into the various prior versions of each of the above games on different systems, but we are gonna be keeping our advice current with the console generations to hand at the time of recording the ps5 and xbox series x aren't yet commanding the majority of gamers the broadest install base is still nintendo switch playstation 4 and xbox one plus steam ios and android though i will advise against any final fantasy mobile game over dedicated gaming machines with controllers whether built from the ground up or adapted for phones
1: i can concur with that i tried to play final fantasy, final 4, fantasy 4 remake 4, the remake on my ipad expecting that that would be my uh, favorite way of interface i thought you'd like it, it
0: more like that too and
1: no it just did not work at all the control systems fell all wrong mm.
0: okay this means that on ps4 you can play one two three four five six seven eight nine ten and then 12, 14, 15. So that's the Mechanics Age, the Story Age, most of the Blockbuster Age, and most of the MMO Age. Switch has almost all of those too, along with a cute little pocket version of 15, originally made for mobiles. I haven't played that yet, but I did just buy it in a sale. I don't know quite how I'm going to tackle 15. I feel like I'm going to watch Kingsglaive, which is the film that got released for it, so that I can give a toss about these characters. Then I'm going to play the pocket version of Fifteen, which is much shorter and more chibi and fun. Then I'm gonna play the pre-make, as in the big blockbuster game that I've now already bought all the DLC on, so they added character depth later, uh, after people complain that the characters that you travel with are very thin and underwritten. (sighs) So, I've spent an awful lot of money on this Final Fantasy game I haven't yet played. A bold choice. Now on the Switch, you can't play 11, who would want to, or 14, but you can't play 13 on either Switch or PS4. Only on Xbox One via backwards compatibility, and also notably this version has been remastered so that the initially janky cutscenes run much more smoothly, commensurate with the PS3, which of course you can still play Final Fantasy XIII on if you drag your boat anchor PS3 console up out of the briny depths. So you put the same 360 disc into your 360 and the cutscenes will not play very well. You put it in your Xbox One, the version it downloads from the internet using your get disc as a key is much better. And I will add that while everyone seems to hate the Xbox, my goodness, was Microsoft on the ball when it came to keeping your discs and digital purchases still largely playable over so many generations of hardware since the year 2001. Unfortunately, the pixel remasters don't seem to be coming to Xbox, so that system is only 7 through 15. So you get a bit of the story age. Half of the story age. You get 7 and 9, but not 4 and 6. And then the blockbuster age, and a lot of the MMO age. Now when it comes to what version of Final Fantasy 4 to pick up, the easiest will be the pixel remaster, and that should be great. We're not putting this show out until you can get that on the Switch with clean presentations, some quality of life perks, I think you can do the speed up thing that you did with Final Fantasy VII, and the added bonus of a brand new version of the music, so it's like the third incarnation, and I love the pixel remaster scores. But let's look at a few alternate ways to play, one of which is the way that Sharon and I played. And a lot of folks, and I agree with them, believe that this one is in fact the best version of Final Fantasy IV. Now you can divide the many, many incarnations of Final Fantasy IV into three types, original, remaster, and remake. Original is the Super Nintendo version, that is the first in the series on the 16-bit system. So it's three on the NES, and then four, five, and six on the SNES. And then the whole series went to PlayStation 1. But there were also three versions of Final Fantasy IV on the Super Nintendo. There was the Japanese version, there was the US release that was renamed Final Fantasy II, And it was obviously translated, but it was also simplified for Americans. They were, Square were very worried that we wouldn't understand in the West, and we'd get too bogged down with all this convoluted menus and things. So they just took some stuff out that they didn't think we'd need, which these days would be referred to as dumbing down. But then there was a third version, a Japanese version, that was released a few months after the original Japanese one, with those same accessibility tweaks. And it's literally called Final Fantasy IV Easy Type.
1: This is the seeds for those bastards who don't like the idea of there being an easy mode for anything, isn't it? I think so.
0: And for a little taste of this kind of person, I think it's probably best to go over to the great Jim Stephanie Sterling, who personifies these comments in the form of a pale, precious, persnickety aristocrat from the 18th century.
3: I'm so sick of all these people who call themselves gamers! No, you're not. Most of you are not even close to being gamers. I see these people saying, I put a hundred hours into this game, it's great! A hundred hours is nothing! Most of us can easily put over 300 plus in all of our games. (laughs) I see people who only have a Nintendo Switch and claim to be gamers. Come talk to me when you pick up a PS4 controller, then we be friends. Also, dear all women, Pokemon is not a real game! Animal Crossing is not a real game! Mario is not a real game. Stardew Valley is not a real game. Put down the baby games and play something that requires some challenge and skill for once. Royston, Royston, I put over three hundred plus into my video games. Demon Souls, of course. This isn't Animal Crossing. This is video game.
0: And it's a shame because that, that easy type version was being released for Japanese kids, little kids who didn't necessarily like little kids. It, it, it worked well as baby's first RPG. We are, try, I am trying my absolute best not to say JRPG for reasons that actually connect to. Is it the Final Fantasy sixteen director?
1: Yes, I believe so. Right. It's the. It's whatever they're working on at the moment. Yeah. So yeah.
0: This is something that I hadn't considered for all the time I've been using the term, but it has been considered by a lot of Japanese developers to be kind of a a disparaging term. So I'd always regarded it as japan was the king of this kind of rpg and it will be of this particular type mm-hmm. but i think specifically around the uh, the 2000s again because there was a sort of a rise in western rpgs we even did tony and i did a show on the difference between mm-hmm. eastern and western rpgs i i personally think that the way forward for rpgs is actually making it feel a bit more like fighting in real life so fallout is closer Know, do you remember? Do you remember Mass Effect's fighting system?
4: No, it, it was um, it was all real time.
1: Um, you could pause the action, uh, and actually, yeah, I, the action didn't pause entirely, but you could go into menu screens and actually uh, bring up different things to actually use on. It was on more the, tactical
2: uh, though, as
1: well. Uh,
0: yeah. There were a lot of uh, boys who wanted to be seen as very, very grown up in America, who uh, kind of were very dismissive of old turn-based style creaky mechanics they wanted new fast punchy action Mm -hmm. devil may cry with numbers
1: and so they used it as a term of derision yeah i mean ultimately even if it was fine back then i would say it has ceased to be a useful term these days because it's very, very rare that a game will be made with the input of one country and one country.
0: Absolutely. Right? Also, you'll get plenty of Japanese RPGs. Like the Dark Souls games stem from Japan, mm-hmm. from soft are Japanese. It's not turn-based, not in the same way. No. Bioware have done a whole bunch of turn-based RPGs. They just hide the turns beneath and the dice rolls beneath what appears to be more like flowing combat. Mm. And there's plenty of turn-based uh, Western RPGs that are throwbacks to this particular era. Yeah. Either way, I'm just going to go with turn-based. It's not that much trouble.
1: Yeah, Here's my phrasing. Stop and wait for me to catch up. Those are the ones I like.
0: (laughs) Notable, by the way, this one was one of the first to have the active battle time. Before that, it was, okay, so I'm going to hit you, and then you hit me, and then I'll hit you, and you hit me, and I'll hit you. (laughs) This was the first one where the enemies were like, oh, fuck it. I'm just going, boom, there you go. You you waited too long. You waited too long. What am I going to do? (laughs) What going to do?
1: It's not just Rochambeau anymore. Yes.
0: <laughs> These are not
1: polite lizards. <laughs> Marcus of Queensbury um, RPG rules.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I say, I shall try and knock you down, sir. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, no, that, that, this was a big thing. Like the, a, a lot of what we consider to be staples of Final Fantasy, oh, sorry, not even just Final Fantasy, just RPGs in general, had their birth here and became industry standards, so you could play it and go, it feels a bit generic, and it's like, well, that's... That's like watching The Godfather and saying, it's a bit generic of of crime dramas, wouldn't you say? Yes, that's because everything stems from this wellspring. Dragon Quest fans would, of course, remind me that Dragon Quest came first in 1986 and laid down the mechanics before Square copied Enix with Final Fantasy in 1987. But that's the mechanics. Final Fantasy IV emerged in Japan in 1991. Dragon Quest V, the first one that had a truly amazing character-based story, came out in 1992. So yeah, you got all the SNES versions of the game. There was an early 2000 PlayStation version that is harder than the American Super Nintendo version. I believe. And finally, the new Pixel Remaster which holds fairly closely to the 16-bit incarnation with appealing repainted presentation, water, light effects, fire effects, grass, they all look luscious. But then there's a 3D remake, so a second category, which launched originally on DS in 2007 by Matrix Software and later on Mobile. This was a year after Matrix Software did the 3D remake of Final Fantasy III that I mentioned above is like a basic-ass version of Bravely Default. This Final Fantasy IV remake has voice acting and a reorchestrated score. So you got the original SNES score, you got the reorchestrated one, and then the Pixel Remastered is the third version of the score.
4: Your Majesty, what's become of you? Where is the noble knight, the man who took me in as an orphan, and raised me as his own? The strong, just king I once knew. Is a crystal worth all this? Robbing a peaceful people of what's theirs by right, what need could be so great? King's orders or no, there's no forgiving what we've done. Cecil? Won't you tell me what happened? First you're sent off to Massidia. and now to hunt some beast again so soon? Did something happen in Masidia? No, it's nothing. Then why won't you look at me? I... in Messidia we... We stole a crystal from people who had done no wrong. I've worn this darkened armor for so long now. There's no mode of light left in me. Not even in my heart. You're a good man, Cecil.
0: Breed of pixelated flat storytelling, this is Polygons and Emotions. This version is a lot more cinematic, and it's very possible you might like it more than the SNES-type version. It's also harder, and thus more grindy than the 2D versions, though it does also have an auto-battle to help speed things up, though I believe the pixel remaster might also have that thing like I mentioned just now as well as being less grindy and a bit easier. I fully intend to go back in a few years and play this 3D remake to completion just to spend time with these characters on this journey again. I think the uh, the term someone couched it in, in one of them, I've, I've lost track of who was doing what video, there's so many. Um, someone said, you just play the whole game the whole way through and you will be strong enough to face each part along the way. That's one of the reasons I really, really warmed to this game, especially for the first four fifths would you say yeah Uh, it's it's just allows you to go along at a not a breakneck pace but it just keeps going it's popping it's it's not you're not wandering around in the dark going where am i can i please stop doing this it doesn't wear out its welcome end game slightly different kettle of fish we'll talk about that later but from the sounds of it the 3d remake does require you to grind a bit more to get stronger to face certain other things, so that does leave you wandering around the desert just doing auto battle. So,
1: I, I did not play enough of the 3D remake to make a, a, an assessment mm. on that, but I was not a fan of the 3D. I think. Mm. Sequences well
0: at the time we decided between the two of them. I'd watched a lot of videos that said definitively We like the PSP one best and then just as I was finishing this off I watched a lengthy like five and a quarter hour one where it was like I love the 3d remake I just don't really vibe with the whole pixel one So it's like it really is like you can't really go wrong unless you spend a large amount of money on a version you don't like. If you don't like the aesthetic, go with whatever aesthetic looks nicest. Mm, And if you're prepared for a little bit more grindage.
1: For me, I think the charm of a pixel-based game is always going to win out over something that looks like a lot of triangles stuck together.
0: This person did also say that they think that, the, that Final Fantasy VI affects them more than even the 3D remake of Final Fantasy IV, so it's not just a one-to-one, pixels don't affect me emotionally. Notably, Final Fantasy VI hasn't had a remake... yet. Come on.
3: Come on. Do it. Do it! Come on. Come on. Come on, do it now!
0: Nintendo also released five of the six NES and SNES games, one, two, not three, but four, five, and six, all on Game Boy Advance in the early 2000s. These were ports of remastered versions, so that's why we're now in this third category, remasters, uh, made for a Japanese-only handheld called the Wonderswan Color. They got new localised script translations when they were ported over for American release, which is why I classify these as remasters, because the original SNES script for Final Fantasy IV is quite clumsy. Apparently the Pixel Remaster mostly uses the GBA script, but the DS translation word for word is apparently the most accurate to the original Japanese. They were also adapted for a tiny, non-backlit handheld screen with super light colour schemes and bigger, bolder, more readable text, plus the music took a step down in transition to the tinny, hissing, Wonderswan and then GBA speakers. Fortunately now, if you're into emulation, you can get the GBA version patched with darker, richer colours for our backlit screens, and an only slightly compressed Super Nintendo soundtrack upgrade. Likewise, you can get the retranslated script patched into the SNES version, and you can get a full-on orchestral scoring via emulation tech called MSU-1, so you can play the SNES version with this operatic... Quite something. Purists, obviously, will absolutely tell you every single time, if you're going to play this game for the first time, go with the original score for it. The original machine's output. I don't think I've ever been a purist. I'd say if one version of the music resonates with you more than the other, and that's a selling point for you, it's not to be overlooked. Music is one of the emotional connectors, and this is an emotional game. The GBA version also added additional quests and dungeon content, meaning that there's slightly more to do on Nintendo's early 2000s Game Boy than there is on the more faithful Switch version. I've seen this referred to as like a special release of a favorite album with bonus tracks that aren't necessarily going to be on every subsequent future re-release. You don't like it. That's why it's a special edition. And then there is the version that we played, one that is hard to get hold of nowadays. You're going to need to jump on eBay and start going through your local flea markets to look for PSP games. The complete edition launched after the 3D remake. In 2011, it has absolutely gorgeous graphics, even more beautiful use of elements, and a slightly more tightly packed screen and font size suited for handheld play, which is always better for my eyes, as is the gorgeous OLED screen of the Vita. To me, the PSP version looks better than the Pixel Remaster, which is saying something, because the Pixel Remaster is gorgeous. Also, it has the revised Game Boy Advance script, so there wasn't any real point when I thought, well, that was poorly translated, plus the choices of original chiptunes or remastered score from the DS version, allowing you to change in-game. Which was just announced as a feature for the Switch and PS4 versions. One hopes they will patch that into the Steam, iOS, and Android versions of the Pixel remasters already released. But it also has, a whole other 35-hour game called Final Fantasy IV The After Years. It only takes about
1: 22 hours to play Final Fantasy IV. This bonus is longer than the game. Well, to be fair, a lot of the content was the same.
0: Yeah. (laughs) We'll talk about The After Years at the end. This week, you can also listen to Sharon and I guesting on the Old Kids Movies podcast on Ella Enchanted with Anne Hathaway. You might remember we recorded a school of movies with AJ and Trevor from Old Kids Movies on Stand By Me. We were also on their 50th episode on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and we had an equally fun time here as well. Here is a clip from that Ella Enchanted episode. Where we enlighten these folks about the British tradition of pantomime. You, are you folks familiar with pantomime? The British theatrical tradition of pantomime? Panto to us. I'm not getting a yes.
1: Uh, uh, I'm okay. you, you, mean, you mean I like, know what
0: miming is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, 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 sir. Okay, so what is pantomime? It's like a play they put on at Christmas in the town hall. And they get someone who was on Emmerdale or uh, Darling Buds of May as like a a, guest
1: star. Those don't mean anything. I know,
0: I'm deliberately being (laughs) obtuse.
1: Yes, of course, of
0: course. It's a camp farce where they have uh, drag act Widow Twanky come out. In theatrical mama circles, she is known as the Dame. There's lots and lots of risque humor. The kids laugh because of all the slapstick, the adults laugh because they're sneaking crude humor past the kids you kind of have to be of a certain mindset to appreciate it. But *Ella Enchanted is actually like a really kind of queer-friendly movie that, that you could sort of sit down and watch in it. it like pretty much every cast member seems to be on the uh, the rainbow in some capacity in,
1: in some there's a, there's a, There is a lot of camp overlay, and I do think that Shrek has a lot of pantomime Mm. Oh, yeah, Um,
0: with the crudity mixed in with uh, pop culture references. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But it Mm -hmm. does kind of emerge from that theatrical drag concept, but done in a way that is very family accessible. So traditionally, they're always based around fairy tale stories. And like Alex said, you'll always have some elements of drag. So there'll be uh, the, the ugly stepmother will be... In drag, and probably the sisters as well. There's it, a
0: very knowing, winking. Peter, we know we're putting on a play yeah. about. Peter the whole Pan thing. is mm. usually
1: played by a girl, and if you have a, a Cinderella story or something like that, Prince Charming is usually played by a woman as well. It's it's almost sort of it's the it's the Shakespearean men in tights concept, I suppose. That there mm. there's there's elements of this is funny just because of all the the gender bending, mm. but there's also a, uh, a sort of the people from within the theatrical community being able to let loose and mix up the roles that they play that they don't normally get to play yeah this sounds fantastic AJ why don't we have
0: this here <laughs> uh, do you, do you want to go <laughs> to see a show <laughs> Now there are deaths in this game, which are often shocking and sad and unexpected. However, they do walk a few of these back, revealing the character to in fact be alive. So, to avoid robbing them of their initial power, we are going to mention some deaths, but we are not going to say if that person comes back. That way, when you'll play it, you'll never be 100% sure that this isn't the last time you'll see these characters, and I think, frankly, knowing people are going to die will actually make it more tense. Also, we have to extend a special thank you to longtime friend of the show, Daniel Floyd, who is undertaking a series-long, extended project about the animation of each numbered Final Fantasy game for New Frame Plus. He is currently up to four and watching his video on YouTube made us want to play Final Fantasy IV immediately. We hope we can pass on that passion for detail down the chain to you good people. And at 55 minutes, that is the longest intro I think I've ever done for anything. (laughs) This opening, this first half was always going to be the Final Fantasy series and an overview and, and what the scores at the doors are now, what the state of play is. So after this musical break, we will be going into characters and their arcs. If you really don't want to know anything about Final Fantasy IV and want to go away, play it and come back, now is the time. with like it starts in media res the we hit the ground running and uh, you're you are playing the part of Cecil who is a dark dragoon knight serving an empire and he is returning from a mission that he was sent in his flying fleet of galleons. Uh, to seemingly rough up a bunch of peaceful mystics and pinch their crystal. Is that right?
1: Y- uh, yes. He, he, he's not really aware of the reasons behind this. Yeah, no, Cecil is
0: not too wise on these matters.
1: No, and um, it's its more the method that suddenly strikes him as being... Well, l- let's just say he has a real are-we-the-baddies moment.
0: Yeah. He absolutely has an of the Baddies moment. And he's, like I say, he's a Dragoon Knight, so he's clad in black, dark armour. Mm. And, like, all you have to do is just stand there and you look like you're brooding. He's like Batman in Final Fantasy.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: The, he gets attacked by a bunch of eyeball dudes, and in both versions of the game, he wipes the floor with them, illustrating how tough he is from yeah. the get go.
1: I don't think you actually play this.
0: Uh, the PSP one, no, but the DS remake, yes. Okay. Mm. And when you get back to the castle, you go straight to the king and go, dude, what gives? Like, we're, uh, I'm supposed to be uh, uh, like the, a military leader. I'm not supposed to be roughing up priest types yeah. and, and pinching sacred artifacts. What? 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 Yes.
1: And the what king goes... What are we goes, doing wiping the floor with the peace-loving sheep-stealers yeah. of Splattercon 5? <laughs> How are they peace-loving, but
0: they also steal sheep? You
1: can steal sheep peacefully.
0: Okay. Um, that's not a situation. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Cecil is our lead protagonist and he forms the game's core concept which is redemption and how because he starts off someone who's done shitty things and is already now feeling bad about it, his path through the game is to redeem himself but he knows and interacts with various people who themselves start to falter in their darker paths as well. Mm. In a way that, I'll say it now, we've seen done way better since then. It is admirable that they go this hard early on. It annoyed me by the time we get to the end of the game that there were character opportunities right there in front of them that were not taken. Yeah, I they... think we'll talk about that when we get more to the end game because it specifically pertains to the villains.
1: But yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will just say this going in. They lean on the whole, I was doing bad shit because I was mind-controlled a little bit too much.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: But there are also multiple examples of characters taking questionable actions because of grief or frustration hmm. or envy or something else motivating them to make a choice or commit an action that were they in their clearest mind, they probably wouldn't do. Mm.
0: And Cecil has a brother in arms named Kane, who kind of comes and goes throughout the story and that is actually the MO of the entire game as you go through it. Your party changes constantly, you're always with Cecil, I think there's a couple of exceptions where you cut away from him but it's usually just to catch you up on where other characters are. Mm. Uh, But Cecil is joined by people who then depart, and then he's joined by people who then die, and then he's joined by people who stick with him. One of the uh, retrospectives I watched showed the changing rosters as it went through, and I was like, I could tell at what point of the game I was for each of those rosters, which speaks very highly of its character dynamics, because a really good party system, you'll feel like they bounce off each other rather well, rather than just simply existing and going, we're all going to do the same thing and we agree with each other. There's a lot of infighting here, which is entertaining and compelling.
1: Yeah, and also this is something which is a, to my mind, a a core mechanics concept for the Final Fantasy games, which is that the nature of your character roster has a narrative impact. And in this particular instance, it's all controlled by the game. You don't get any choices about who you have in your party yeah. at any given time, unlike in later games. Yeah. But what it does do is the, the nature of who is around him obliges Cecil to take different roles in the combat. Because of who he is and because of how his story develops, which we will come to, he has a certain degree of flexibility, but he will have to be directed more towards the being the hard hitter or more towards being the backup healer or more towards being the stay in the background and don't get involved depending on who is in the party at any given time
0: this is also the first final fantasy game where you meet characters who are i am this class this class is me i am really good at this thing except edward (laughs) We'll get to him in a bit, but uh, the.
1: Well, no, he does. He has a thing that he's really good at. It's just that it's one thing. It's stupid. <laughs> but <laughs> but he's he's going to do it, it anyway.
0: <laughs> Edward is the punching bag of the <clears> throat> throat> throat>
1: throat> I like Edward.
0: Yeah, I know you would. Mother him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I just think he's, he's
0: got a bit of wounded soldier about him. He does a he's bit. But it's
1: it's the. I say
0: soldier. Wounded poet
1: He has a very unusual character class That does not generally turn up in fighting games
0: As we speak right now The uh, Dungeons and Dragons featuring a bard in the lead Movie is just being released And we've now seen it In fact I've seen it twice It's really good And I feel like everyone's going to just straight up ignore it Because of John Wick 4 and Super Mario Bros Which is a goddamn shame Okay, so we got Cecil Harvey, who is the Dark Knight. And uh, after he's told, shut up, stop asking questions by his king, he mooches around the castle, eventually winds up in his bedroom, and uh, his girl, Rosa, comes to see him. And a lot of people have pointed it out, and I'm gonna do it the same. It's a good thing. A pre-existing romantic relationship with the leading character in an RPG that barely ever happens. We are so often foisted upon teenagers who meet another teenager and kind of get all middle school about each other. Yep,
1: yep, yep, yep. Too much in the way of meet-cutes and angsty staring at your feet while shuffling from Mm. one to the other and stuff like that. None of that here. These are grown-ups who've been in a relationship for a while
0: so it's a step forward there it then almost immediately takes a step back and falls on its ass as rosa uh his girlfriend uh first off gets sick when trying to find him and is thus ailing in a sick bed then gets kidnapped then gets kidnapped again but at some point in the game rosa kind of like gets to be an ongoing white mage for the group and uh we've she's Not only there for emotional support for uh, Cecil, you start to feel like she's a really important person to have around and to keep her on point. They do a very excellent job with that. I think it's because I came to this from playing Final Fantasy VI, and in Final Fantasy VI, you can teach anyone a lot of different spells by giving them different espers to try. So you have Ifrit for a while, he'll teach you fire, have him for a while longer, Fyra, Fyrega. And eventually I started like, I was rotating them throughout the cast. So like people's magic stock grew to absurd levels. Mm. And I was like, I wish that I knew less magic with each character. Now, obviously that was my fault, but at the same time, there were many, many battles where because they all knew Petrify, or how to get out of petrify i survived so it's not even like there's a tactical advantage to streamlining it's actually more tactically advantageous to have this giant vast and the worst thing is like they're not actually stacked close to each other they're all over the place and higgledy-piggledy and so navigating the menus is sometimes quite laborious but here you level up Uh, As soon as you hit level 20 as a healer, you learn Cura, and you will always learn Cura. They have a roster of spells that they will learn when they hit that level. There's no player input to that whatsoever, which to a degree takes away from the role-playing, but re-emphasizes their job, their role in the team, and it divides them out and away from each other. It's kind of an automated version of something like the sphere grid in Final Fantasy X and the job system in Final Fantasy XII.
1: But it's it. But the like the material system in seven mm. is more like you were describing with six. You can attach. It's the material that grows, not the individual, and you can attach that material ah, to it. But
0: seven put all the fiddling around in between fights, not during fights. Yes, yes, this is true.
1: But then when you get to the point where you've got, God knows how many armor slots, you have to remember who's got what. The only thing I would say with this that it is is like a tiny little. Eh, is that there are three girls mm-hmm. who come in and out of your roster throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Two of them are white, white mages. mages. Yep, and, and the other one—they're also
0: squeaky clean as well.
1: Is a black mage. Yeah. There, there are. No, I mean, not a summoner.
2: Not an Adelai.
1: Yeah. Not that every game has to have at least one tough girl who can hit things with sticks.
0: Mm. But, but the having complete
1: a complete th- absence of them in this one.
0: Having a Tifa, having a Celeste, even though she's not a party member, Beatrix from Final Fantasy IX was very welcome. Mm-hmm. And also, you've got Freya from Final Fantasy IX. Lightning in 13, while coded male, uh, is, you know, she's, she's got a sword and she's, she hits hard with it, as does Fang, who's definitely coded female, but is a heavy hitter as well. The summoner that you just mentioned, Rydia. What happens after Cecil leaves with Cain, after expressing his misgivings and uh, are-we-the-baddies doubts to Rosa, is uh, he's sent to a nearby village called Mist. Yes. And as soon as he steps into Mist, something happens which made you gasp. You went, oh no!
1: Yeah, well, having established that he's not happy about the way things are going, and... Uh having shared a little bit of his misgivings with Cain, he's then sent as a kind of dirty bomb mm. to Mist. He's given a ring... Yeah, in... And just told take this to the village of mist and as soon as he walks across the village threshold it releases a poison gas into the air that knocks out all the villagers
0: it's bombs they are uh, like the, the floating
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: bomb that creatures that turn up in later Final Fantasy games uh, it's called like a Galbadian signet in some versions of the game but other versions of the game it's simply called bomb ring Brilliant. And you're like here here is this bomb ring uh, take it to Mist for me. Why is it called that? Because uh, it's de bomb. It's a good ring.
1: Obviously.
0: Oh, no, the bomb ring turned out to be full of bombs.
1: <laughs> well, that's it. It's not poison gas. It's just a series of explosions.
0: Yeah. And uh, it, it wrecks the uh, village. But here's the thing. There's a little girl with green hair uh, crying over her mother, who is now dead. But here's the thing, to get to Mist you have to go through an underground cave and on the way out, you encounter a dragon who tells you repeatedly to leave and eventually becomes your first major boss battle. So you and Cain, the other Dark Knight, the uh, your brother in arms, both go up against this dragon and you learn with the active time battle to stop attacking it when it's in mist form because then it, it counters fairly devastatingly. That's much the same as the uh, lightning whelk at the beginning of Final Fantasy VI and the scorpion tank at the beginning of Final Fantasy VII. It's just a... It's to teach you not to spam the attack button and maybe to hold back for a bit and and, uh, and observe and time your attacks and change your tactics. So you kill this dragon, then you go on to Mist, and it's not the bombs that cause the most devastation. There's a young girl with green hair crying over her mother who is now dead, and then you find out that... It's because you killed the dragon, the dragon was the summon of that particular woman, and killing the dragon also killed her, so you have murdered this little girl's mother. And then begins a one of many dramatic battles that utilize the combat system to show a dramatic event, which I think was actually well ahead of its time and, and actually really inventive. Um, it, th- there are several moments in this game that I was like, that was really good use of a battle that I just took to be a battle.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: because the little girl um, loses her rag and summons a titan who splits the land in half, which cuts Cecil off from Cain, his brother in arms, and leaves him alone with this little girl who's now unconscious. Her name is Rydia and she actually turns out to be one of the most important significant characters in the game because she represents the rotten shit Cecil has done in the name of his duty and so he immediately gets a massive pang of guilt uh, for this you know double atrocity he's visited upon this girl wrecking a house home village family leaving her with absolutely nothing so he takes her off to an inn then to try to get her out of her catatonia and Imperial guards come in the night to try to slaughter her, and Cecil stands in their way, effectively drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, I'm not going to do this shit anymore.
1: Indeed. He's also shared his fears with Kane before they're separated, and Cain indicates that he is of a similar mind, that he's yeah. not happy about... The things they've been asked to do of late.
0: But he couldn't be sure that Cecil wasn't going to stab him in the back immediately if he had vouched any of this. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do more on Kane later, folks. Uh, after this section, you take Rydia out into the desert and kind of train her up because she's rubbish at first immediately, but learns how to summon fairly quickly. You just got to protect her. And Cecil is pretty good at just like kind of. Taking the damage. You then go off into a cave because you've got to get a sand pearl from the ant lion because Rosa's turned up and is now suffering from severe dehydration, and the sand pearl will bring her back to life. But in the cave, you meet a, na- a man named Teller who is a spellcaster, and he's very worried about his daughter, who's been seeing this bard named Edward, who we mentioned before, and he's got to get to her castle, so you all go together. You get the sand pearl. When you get to that castle, another one of those big dramatic moments happens. It's like you, you wander out onto the world map, and you go, there's the castle, and then the ship, the airships you were on with the Red Wings at the beginning fly past, bomb the castle and then fly off uh, to the uh, exit stage left. It's very theatrical. It's almost like that bit in South Park, Mm -hmm. the movie where they bomb the Baldwins' house in much uh, similar way. It's when the Canadians attack. And this is where the plot gets a, a wild tonal imbalance, and at the same time still manages to be very sad because Teller finds his daughter, who has died trying to save her boyfriend, Edward, who has survived. So Teller immediately is furious with Edward, who lived while his daughter Anna died. But Edward is also grieving Anna. He doesn't want to be alive. He's got survivor's guilt out the wazoo. Teller fights Edward, and it's another one of those dramatic battles. And that's when the line gets chewed out that became one of the most infamous in uh, RPG history. You, spoony Bard. The actual translation is in in Japanese there's like four different ways of saying you and the last of these is the most dishonorable and that that version of you is what Teller actually says and then Bard so they had to sort of put a modifier in there and somehow the word spoody that has is actually an English word and means kind of Love, love sick, love fool. like you're an, you're an imbecile and you're crazy in love. but it hasn't been used since like F. Scott Fitzgerald Times worked its way into the translation, which wouldn't be quite so jarring were it not for the fact that this is over a scene where a girl is dead and these two men are racked with survivor's guilt and have no one but each other to blame. Or at least Teller blames Edward and Edward blames Edward and you have to break up the fight, and Edward joins your party but Teller runs off in absolute disgust. So this is a really good example of, it's It's also a good way of, of showing, of, of allowing them to give you different ways of fighting so that you're not always going to go with the same party members and just choose the path of least resistance every time and just like go for an obvious, easy way of, of, of brute-forcing your way through every fight.
1: Absolutely, and this is what I mean about the, the narrative effect of having to choose different strategies for, Ed, for Cecil depending on who is backing him up hmm. at any given moment. And the So uses... when they send
0: you up a mountain alone they also give you a white mage and a black mage so that you don't get completely creamed yes. so also they don't have to nerf the fights down to you fighting one beastie so you can survive it.
1: Absolutely, but this... This interaction between Edward and Teller, again, there's a narrative aspect to it, which is that you it, it's difficult to not be slightly frustrated by the fact that Teller is an awful lot more useful in a fight, at this stage of the game, than Edward is.
0: I've just realised I remember one of the things about the, t- uh, the 3D remake. They were restricted by the amount of polygons they could get on screen. So previously you could get six enemies before, now they could only get three. So they get each of those three enemies to keep it commensurate in the fight to hit you twice as hard. That doesn't balance at all. That's why you get your ass kicked repeatedly in the 3D version. You're like, this is way harder than it was before. It's because of those restrictions. Ah. And that's why you have to grind more, so that these uh, mob, basic mobs that are doing double damage each because they get to hit you repeatedly uh, don't wipe your party out each time. That seems like an oversight. Now, Edward, I think the fact that Teller is this fantastic black mage who can do all kinds of uh, uh, you know, offensive magic and, and you, he, he helps you through the cave and you beat the sand lion with him, and you're like, this is great. Okay, I'm probably gonna... You gotta take it to all of these beasties out here and then he runs away and you're like, okay, well I guess I've got Edward now, he's probably great. And then a lot of people hate Edward because his number one move is to hide. He's like Shaggy and Scooby. Like during a fight, he will rush to the background and curl up into a little ball and then when his next move comes around you've got to coerce him into coming out of his shell and getting back into the uh, arena.
1: Or, you could do what I did, just ignore him. Let him sit there and cower.
0: I kind of did that as well. Yeah. I was like, you know what? It's
1: easier. Let's
0: just leave him there. That's fine, that's Edward.
1: Fine. This is you. I understand.
0: But that's why people didn't like him, because they were in trouble and they couldn't rely on him, and it repeatedly became a narrative point. Again, almost immediately as soon as Edward's part of your party, he goes out at night while you're uh, sleeping at a, uh, an inn and stands by the side of a lake, playing his harp or Lute, depending on which incarnation of the game you're actually engaged with, and he sees the ghost of Anna telling him to forgive himself and to be brave, and that there's much bigger things at stake. And ultimately, she died for much bigger reasons. And he has to kind of fight this creature from the Black Lagoon who conveniently turns up and goes, Rah! And I would almost believe was uh, a time-travelling Anna sending out someone just to test Edward so that he could be ready for this final battle that's uh, to come. But, uh, yeah, it's... Edward has to prove himself, and I think, unfortunately, he gets taken away from your party too soon in the game for you to really start valuing him.
1: Yeah. He's, he is a key facet of something that comes up later, but because you've ended up spending so little time with him overall, it it feels a bit... Mm.
0: And he's very Shakespearean, very foppish, very kind of drippy Romeo type character, but Juliet's dead. So he's, there's no use for him. Then I think this this part was uh, something that Daniel Floyd talked about in his uh, video. And I would actually suggest that when it gets near the end, you hold back when he, uh, Dan starts talking about the the final sequence, which is just full of character because it'll tell you who's definitely around and who's not. But he goes into detail in to a key dramatic scene early in the game, and this is like in the first two hours it, it starts to initiate. Cecil is sick of being a uh, Dark Knight, but doesn't really know what else to do, so uh, in Certain versions... Oh yeah, that's it. If you use shadow magic, which is his strength, it drains your your HP. It makes you weaker to use this. That's why you need a white mage around to keep you alive. The team ends up accidentally driving into a whirlwind and everyone gets flung overboard from this flying ship that they're in. So they get completely separated. And Cecil, our hero, ladies and gentlemen, ends up alone in Masidia. A dwelling that he went and roughed up the mages of and stole their crystal and they're like oh it's you
1: and if you talk to anybody in Messidia, they will do things to you
0: <laughs> he's killed my auntie he's even kicked the bride in the chest <laughs> Yeah, basically, you've been Lancelot. There is, a lot there is
1: somebody in Masidia who, if you talk to them, they will turn you into a toad.
0: Oh, there's this... They, a a there lady is who's a dancer. who will turn
1: you into a pig. And I will say this. You managed to square things away with, a Masidia, with Masidia for the large part. But that lady still turns you into a pig.
0: She's got a pig grudge. <laughs> she she really she's, she's like, You meet dancing girls all over this world <coughs> who say... Look at my, look at me dance, and then they go the, the sprite work in this is so lively, like they will bounce around and pogo up and down to, so that they're not just squatting on the screen like a little blob. They are very active, and it's cartoonish to that degree. Uh, but this dancing girl, her spell will turn you into a pig, and you were like,
3: what do I do now? Am I a pig forever?
0: And I went, go back and talk to the girl. There's also a little old lady who, as soon as you get turned into a pig, goes, You have much to learn, young one.
1: Yeah, there was a problem with the go back and talk to the girl though. Why? Because here's what happened I got turned into a pig, yep. didn't realise there was anything I could do about yep. it, carried on with the game oh, for as a pig. Sake. Joined up with
0: I guess my, I'm a pig now.
1: Joined up with my next two characters... As a pig? As a pig. I'm a pig. They're not pigs. For God's sake. Went and talked to the lady in the bar again after you said go to back and talk to her. Yeah. She unpigged me and pigged them. Oh I had my. to reload the game because otherwise I would have...
0: She d- Basically, it's just that she casts pig on you and you can undo pig by casting pig Correct. on... A person who's already been pigged, but she effectively casts a blanket pig on the whole party, which pigs too, but oh my god. You made it all complicated I for did. no reason. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. What the nicer, more tight-lipped people in Mycidia. This is not the same as the village of Mist, where you slaughtered poor Rydia's mother in the form of a dragon.
1: Although I guess they're not keen on you either.
0: No, they're not fans. They're all dead, luckily, so... The nicer uh, members of this town are like, hey, you should probably do something with your life. You know, better yourself. You should probably go to Mount Ordeals. And I'm like, that sounds like a bit of a trial. And... (laughs) but i already knew what was coming because dan uh, spelled it out so excellently this is where cecil transfers jobs within the game the only example of this actually happening and it's entirely for characterization he's going to go up the mountain with his dark sword that can do nothing against these zombies and he's at their mercy effectively and he's being kept alive by these two loud ma- what well, these two kids one of whom is a pick me teacher i'm ever so smart Uh, ...named Porum...
1: White mage...
0: ...and uh, her mouthy brother named Palum... Black mage... ...who uh, is all over the place uh, and... uh,
1: Literally, he bounds across the screen.
0: I've heard people say that these two are annoying... ...they were some of my favourite moments in the game... ...was just how mouthy this kid was... ...and how also his uh, good sister good though she may be has the one way of keeping her brother in order which is to smack him really hard like her sprite lifts up her hand holds it for a second and then just whaps which we don't we don't suggest that for dealing with your siblings
1: folks Absolutely. also she drags him around by the hair
0: yeah yeah either way they're the ones accompanying you up the mountain you know it's it's perfect though for that kind of story because He's like Hellboy or Colo, just sort of like punch drunk and oh god, I'm really out of my depth here and the kids are very competent at what they do, which is kind of a delightful dynamic. Seeing a guy who's previously been master of his craft completely out of his depth. And ultimately when he gets to the top, he transitions to Paladin, which is a holy warrior. And around about this time, Cain comes back and kidnaps Rosa and uh, this is before or after I think the the Rosa gets taken away. And it turns out that Cain was being mind controlled, mm. and then he isn't, and he's finally broken his programming, and he's back together, and and uh, he's with you. And then he, he is, is. again. Cain yeah, is that- as mind controlled as the narrative requires him to be at all times. The problem with that being, it takes away agency as a character, and it makes him plot rather than a person.
1: Absolutely. So the I was I would I really liked Cain when I first met him. I was. Uh, thrilled to bits when it turned out that he was on my side. I was horrified when it turned out that he'd gone over to the enemy because at the time it's all framed like he was a spy and he's backstabbing. But also there's this thing going on where it's suggested that he has a thing for Rosa, and therefore could it possibly be that he's acting out of jealousy mm-hmm. and that this is this is personal for him rather than it being mustache-twirling bad guy stuff.
0: Which would all have been characterization.
1: Absolutely. And then they take it all away by going, oh no, he was just under the control of mm. the bad guy.
0: As well as this really fantastic bit of uh, changing jobs as part of your your road back to redemption, Cecil starts again from level one and the journey back down the mountain, much like when Rydia was kind of crap at magic to begin with but learns fairly quickly from just being in battles he's back up to like level 10 been not, not too long so you don't lose too much
1: also if you buy his paladin armor before you go up the mountain rather mm. than waiting until you come back down he's a lot better at defending himself
0: yeah that is true but there's one particular dramatic fight we have to praise the mechanics and the story at the same time, and keeping everything hidden behind a veil of "I don't want to spoil this for you" sells the game short. There is a dramatic battle later on where uh, you're all really up against it. There's this like dark lord, the cloak, who's you know supremely powerful and towers over you in the actual um, fighting screen, inflicts this massive spell on everyone and wipes out your whole party except. Uh, Cecil, who is, like, on his last legs, he's got, but percent, like, single digits left. And everything's red, and it's the, it's the end, and and like, had I been engaged with this in terms of, oh, I see what they're doing here, I would have been less surprised. But I'm used to JRP, but I'm used to turn-based RPGs where you do just get wiped out. And later on, those actually do happen. So it's not, like, out of context at this point. But just as you're on your last leg, and you go, oh my god, How was the last time I saved? Especially for you, because you don't save. This sort of cloud of mist occurs and freezes this dragon who's bearing down on you where it stands. And then Rydia comes leaping in and you realize that's her mother's dragon with its misty ice breath saving the day and she's her sprite has changed and she's grown up like she's gone forward in time she's now a teenage girl somehow mm-hmm. I don't know how long you were up on that goddamn mountain she's
1: Ilyana Rasputin
0: yeah she yeah she goes from being a little girl to um, wearing slightly too revealing clothing for a little girl and uh, it's it's up in the air we like I've heard people say she's seven years old and if that's the case then Jesus Christ
1: She's definitely older. I'm not entirely sure how it comes about, but somehow she has become older in the process of learning her summons.
0: Yes. So now she's much more confident, and she uh, doesn't have that um, problem of feeling overloaded. But actually, thinking about it, before we get to that mountain, there's a point where their way is blocked by ice, and Rosa asks... Rydia, could you please learn fire? And then tell Cecil that obviously fire destroyed her village. She's going to be more upset about having to use this. So again, it's a piece of video game dynamic and mechanics at work but it's being used in a narrative fashion, so when Rydia decides, okay, I've got to do this, it's for a a bigger reason than just my own fears and misgivings, being able to melt the ice in front of her feels like a, a big step forward. And this is shortly before you get separated, so it's like she's making her own path. I am a little ticked off that all of this progress for Rydia happened off screen it feels like at least give us a montage of that show us roughly what happened here
1: but I, I mean that moment of where the dragon turns up and you realise that she's got she's the, the spirit of her mother has, mm. has now become part of her magic set is incredibly moving
0: It is one of my favourite Final Fantasy moments of all time. And considering my favourite Final Fantasy moments are in the running for favourite video game moments of all time, that is saying something. And it's an astonishing use of an old, turn-based RPG on a PSP screen with absolutely no requirement for cinematic 3D or any major effects. It's breathtaking, in a way that made me air punch. There's also another dramatic fight where you find Edward again, and he's in bed, bedridden. He's like, oh, I can't walk, I can't go anywhere. But um, if you don't talk to him in the basement of a castle because you didn't turn to your left, and you just walked up and then all the way back down again in this apparently very long corridor of a castle, and you go all the way through a dungeon and you get to a boss you can't beat, and then have to go all the way back through the dungeon, go back to the castle, and turn left, just so you can have this talk with Edward, He gives you, effectively, a walkie-talkie, which is called Whisper-Weed, and this weed allows Edward to play over great distances, and he uses his bard powers to depower this boss who would otherwise completely flatten you. So it's kind of like that coming in to save the day that Rydia does, but you've got to initiate it and set it up first. Absolutely. You've got to send Gandalf off to go and get <clears throat> the Rohirrim.
1: And it doesn't feel quite the same because he gets to do it from his hospital bed.
0: His sick bed whilst ailing.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's another character called Edge Geraldine who comes into the game quite late and Sharon is clutching her forehead as though this guy did her nuttin'.
1: He did a bit, yeah. Um,
0: so who is Edge?
1: Edge is—he's edgy. Uh, he is. They call him Edge because he's so edgy. He spends so all night edging. He's the prince of a certain kingdom, and his parents. You're saying it like
0: like it's a big secret. There's like five kingdoms in this world and, and they're that... the only populated areas and the actual population of this entire world is less than a 100 people and all the monarchs know each other.
1: I'm not saying it like it's a big secret, I'm saying it like I can't remember what it's yes. called.
0: Yes, it's the kingdom of <laughs> Um
1: So his parents have been kidnapped by our current big bad mm. in order to do weird experiments on them. And Notice we haven't he... actually
0: said who the big bad is. It's still the emperor. But well, it kind
1: of this is the thing. It shifts as you go along. Mm-hmm. Because the the King of Baron, Cecil's boss, who you're up against to begin with, turns out to be having his strings pulled by someone else. He's
0: being mind-controlled, folks.
1: Who turns out to be having their strings pulled by someone else.
0: He's being mind-controlled, folks. Who
1: turns out to be having their strings pulled by someone else. He's being mind-controlled, this, folks. The, the big bad, technically speaking, is always the same. Ultimate person, but you're going up the food chain.
2: Uh huh.
1: So, Edge's parents have been kidnapped. He decides he needs to avenge them. He tries to go off and do it himself and fails miserably, then insists on joining your party rather than going back and leading his people, which is what his Grand Vizier wants him to do. But he's like, no, I must avenge my parents. And Attaches himself to you So that he can do this Now the problem is that at this stage I was about ten levels above him hmm. And as a result every He was time always I, dragging his Every ass. time I got in a fight He'd get killed immediately And I would have to waste Rose's time Bringing him back to life Oh
0: so when Edward does it it's cute But when the ninja <laughs> does it
1: Well no 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 When Edward does it He just hides I can ignore that Right when Edge is dead, it's like there's a dead guy at the bottom of my battle. I cannot Rosa, have that. Could you do
0: something about that before he starts stinking up the place?
1: <laughs> exactly. Also, or you I f- ran out of Phoenix Downs really quick.
0: You forget, I had to deal with the deadbeat ninja in Final Fantasy VI. That dude sucks. I quite liked Edge. <laughs> I like the fact that he was clearly overcompensating and the game was oh, kind wildly. of flagging that. Just to yeah. make uh, little teen boys are, uh, a little more aware that when they overcompensate, we can see.
1: Yes, when it, it, it does become amusing. Yes. But it was just, like I said, every time we went into, into battle, and then I was like, oh, he actually has all these powers that I didn't know were there. Oh, they're useless. Mm. Oh.
0: <laughs> also, the bit that made you laugh was when I tried to explain to you his stealing ability, which is to run over to an enemy... <laughs> Koala bear up them, hang on to them, what? And then it just says, caught by the enemy. And I've never seen that in a game. And specifically, there's this awkward half second of, before he goes back, he's like, whack. And then he, he gets hit with one damage. And it's basically like, couldn't steal anything. Yeah. But it's, caught by the enemy suggests that he's a crap ninja.
1: Absolutely. And I did ability. that like 70
0: times before I stole anything.
1: It never. And seemed... then I
0: encountered that uh, inventory problem.
1: Yeah, it never seemed to really get any better as well. I kept doing it thinking, well, eventually he's going to start...
0: Like, Final Fantasy Two.
1: Actually, stealing things, and then sooner or later, it's going to get to the point where he is able to do it every time. Mm. No, nope. nope. no, no. He's just continually crap. And also, there was a, a, an extended version of this where I, I was having real trouble with some grinding,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I got, got some to a
0: grindage. Point
1: where there was, I was in an area where there was like there were two mobs that I was actually able to take out. Everybody else was wiping the floor with me. Then I found Rydia's stop ability. And oh my god, this entire area suddenly opened up because I got a really nifty sequence going out, and I actually started arranging my order of characters so that Rydia would get her turn fairly early, so that I could, you know, pick out if this bot if this guy is here, I need to hit him with stop really fast. If there's two of them, then I need to get them both down, and that way I actually stand a chance of being able to get them. <laughs> so I thought. Edge should be able to steal from a stopped character because a stopped character can't catch him. Oh yes, they can. <laughs> <She's laughs> There's steal- nothing you can do to make Edge's steal ability any more useful.
0: Also, it's so embarrassing to st- <gasps> to stand there watching him work his ninja magic and go, "You fail again." Yep. <clears throat> It's okay, Hedge. You'll get better. Now stay in the back row.
1: He also has the ability to throw things. Yeah. And every so often you will come across shurikens or knives Mm. or things that you can throw and they will do massive damage. Yep. But that's it. You get what one. one time. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's gone. And
0: they're very expensive if you're buying them.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just using the ones that I found.
0: The most powerful one in the game uh, I got was a kitchen knife. And mm-hmm. that was from uh, a, a quest. In certain other versions of the game, it's a spoon. But it'll inflict 9999 damage. And so you're probably best off leaving it for the last boss. Yes. <clears throat> then there's Sid, who uh, is this cantankerous airship engineer much like sid highwind uh, only a little bit more genial and he's kind of uh, he's got a little dwarf in him
1: is he, is he rosa's dad
0: i don't know he's... i don't think so no okay i think like he, he's just this old he has
1: a daughter who yeah. i think yeah i think you go and talk to her and she's like take care of him
2: Hmm. okay
0: this would be why we don't know uh, her name her real name is never mentioned in the game <laughs> she cares and worries about her father who happens to overwork himself often she has long orange hair and wears a blue and white dress that is as much characterization as she gets but again with rydia and uh rosa we do get some decent female characterization even if there is some damseling also going on there's also yang fen Lidon, who uh is a monk and again, I feel like, much like with Edward, you don't really get to spend enough time with him doing different things. Like, he's there and dependable, but he doesn't go through quite so much in terms of uh, an arc.
1: Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, there's his stuff is all side quest based, mm. really. He's most useful in the sense that his claws come with various different elemental damages, which you can swap in and out to take out particular bosses yeah. and enemies.
0: And now let's talk about the uh, end game, because uh, we keep mentioning Cain, and Golbez is this other character who's also a dark knight, and I, I forget, is he this other king who's trying to...
1: He's the person the who, Emperor? it becomes apparent, is pulling the strings behind all of these mind-controlled people.
0: But he himself is also having the strings pulled. we port.
1: don't find out who he really is until the very yeah. end.
0: So I spent this whole time thinking he was this sort of groaty old dude, and as it turns out, he is Cecil's brother. And Cecil and his brother are from the moon. And there are these new species called Lunarians. And they want to do something to people. And so they're studying us from the moon. Okay. And there's rabbits on the moon. And what?
1: Right. So, as far as I can remember.
0: This is what I mean about it going completely off
3: the rails. Here's
1: how it works. Once upon a time Yep This planet okay. And its moon Yep Were uninhabited mm-hmm. A group of aliens mm-hmm. Came here Some of them Were very tired And went to the moon As a stop off point And said We're going to have a nap You go and settle the planet And we will see you In the AM my man Right And That's what happened But then The people on the moon The Lunarians Yep yeah, Ended up just staying there and then some kind of rivalry came about between someone who had gone down to the planet Mm -hmm. and the people on the moon and... No, I've lost myself. It's it's
0: vague and indistinct. It really is. And it never really sells itself. This is the weakest part of the game. Not, not as in the whole section, but just selling the narrative of it's all about the moon and the people who live on the moon because it comes out of left field and takes up the third act of the game and a lot of the actual action.
1: But also because so much of the narrative so far with the characters that we've got to know and love has been a- around their emotional states and motivations to suddenly have this massive left turn of here's why all this has happened and it's through very vague motivation in a character we we don't know and don't meet so it's not necessary you don't need any of that at all just have this guy be your bad guy
0: so many of the final fantasies are anti-imperialist insofar as they have cruel destructive empires that are almost insurmountable. So you usually start as a relatively weak fighting force up against the Shinra corporation. uh, And then you grow in strength until you can actually oppose their biggest, heaviest hitters. In this case, in Final Fantasy VII, you've got Shinra on one side and you've got Sephiroth on the other and the whole thing seems like theater being played out by the planet itself. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But with this, the introduction of the whole moon thing It's like that third act in a film where you're like, suddenly, did you just not know how to end this? And the problem is, Golbez turns out to be Cecil's brother, and he's been mind controlled, so he's also done bad things, but for longer than Cecil. And Cain has also been mind controlled. And I was like, how about you have a character that wasn't mind-controlled and did do bad things but feels bad about it and have that be one character who is either his brother-in-arms or his literal brother instead they've got these two characters who require more depth and consideration
1: time and there's no time left, to, no give
0: time to, left to give it to it and the actual big bad you fight in the game is like something that hr giga pulled out of his nose he's this disgusting gren called Zardoz or something. like I can't even remember his fucking name. I just know that he hits you for 2,500 damage and then if he feels like it, maybe 5,000 damage. Mm-hmm. So you got to level up some more, folks.
1: Zero Mimus or something like that. He is a ball of blue and red spaghetti.
0: It's... It's all... I'll tell you exactly what it's like. It's like the first two... Force Awakens, Last Jedi. I mean, it's not that level of depth, but it's like everything's going really well. There's great momentum to this. And then suddenly, turns out it was the Emperor all along, but it wasn't even the Emperor. It was some Sith Lord puppeteering the Emperor. And then rather than it being all about Kylo Ren, it's also about Captain Phasma, who turns out to be Rey's sister. But Rey doesn't get to have a dramatic confrontation with either Kylo Ren or Phasma. Not when neither of them is being mind controlled. So their motivation is somebody else's pasted on. And that puppeteer, that somebody else, their only motivation is, ha ha ha, we will destroy you. Brilliant. In The After Years, which is a sequel to this that actually does take a kind of a Force Awakened approach to the kids of these characters are sent on similar quests in the same areas there's two masked shadowy guys. One of them could be Kane. One of them could be Golbez, the brother. It could just be one dude who had been given a rich backstory. And it's so frustrating to, to see them like this because ultimately Kane is with your party for so much of the actual adventure. He's away, then he comes back because he's like, I was being mind controlled, then he's away again, then he comes back. But he's, he's there a lot, and he's very dependable, and his dragon jump is this... Like, he'll go off-screen, he'll jump off the screen for a few goes, and then he'll bounce down and inflict double damage. It's fantastic. But also it means he can't be hit while he's not there. It's a great little move. He also
1: can't be healed when he's not there.
0: Indeed. It's a way of making a character more dynamic. But there's so many ways they could make that final... Because they've done so well with the dramatic battles. Make the whole final sequence... About someone you have legitimate beef with. Actual dramatic, so like Cecil and Kane on their last legs, like that neither of them really able to kill the other, or Cecil and Golbez, if he's actually gotten to know Golbez, one or the other. It needs to be a case of what feels personal. Instead, the actual big bad is something so powerful and inhuman that you can't really like it just looks like any other boss in any in one of the dungeons like there are actually multiple creatures on your way to get this thing and specifically summons that look like better more human more intelligent bosses It's a bad idea and that is a shame and it's a it's a strike against Final Fantasy IV. It doesn't make it a worse game really overall because the actual it doesn't take away from the momentum and the fun and the mechanics and the drama of all of the rest of the game that you've played and i didn't even really finish it going what the fuck was all that moon stuff about but just at the end goldbears decides he's going to go and sleep with the other lunarians not like that he's going to go and sleep in the company of the other Lunarians, and that maybe in in time you can forgive him. And in the 3D remake, your friends put a lot of peer pressure on you to forgive him, saying he's your only brother. And I feel like that could have been done in a way where one of them tries to pressure you, and then another, either Rosa or Rydia, like puts their hand up and says, no, this is up to Cecil to decide. Some actions are not required to be forgiven, least of all if it's, well, he's family, and you've got to forgive family. That's actually quite a harmful thing to put out there, because sometimes family members do things that are actually unforgivable. And you can keep forgiving, but if they keep doing terrible things, eventually they are being able to do those at your behest. I cannot abide victim blaming, but we are fed a societal law that we must always forgive family and let them back into our lives. That is a sensibility that requires mature examination. And Kane goes off and isn't present at the end because he's on a mountaintop doing what he does best, which is looking out over views and brooding. If you actually look at the Final Fantasy IV logo, I always thought that was Cecil. It's Kane, standing on one leg elegantly, looking into the distance and brooding. And it's like characterization will be patched in in a later game. <laughs> And that later game did arrive, folks. It's called Final Fantasy for The After Years. This is that 35 hour thing that I mentioned before. It began as, after the DS game, they were looking at the engine, and they were looking at the original game, and they were like, what if we took all these assets we've got here, and we put out the telltale model of chaptered episodic content. And this originally came out on Japanese mobile phones and then the WiiWare side of the Wii store. Do you remember any of the WiiWare games?
1: Um, there was a Wii music thing.
0: I don't think that was that. WiiWare was like it's a indie game made specifically to be sold on the Wii oh, channel. Oh right, no, yeah. I don't
1: remember any. I of think
0: that. Uh, we pl- I, we played Lost Winds of the Melodious or something. I, I got one of them and then. Uh, there was a it was a good uh, remake of the uh, the Castlevania game on the uh, Game Boy that was remade and it's now impossible to get. It's it's since the Wii does not exist and neither does WiiWare. You also can't get these twelve episodes of the After Years, uh, and the PSP version that I mentioned before has this as a whole separate game in exact using the same assets as they used for the original. Also, while you can buy the 3D remake still at the moment on iOS, I know that that Square retired the 2014 mobile ports of Final Fantasy V and Final Fantasy VI when they brought out the Pixel remasters, so you can't buy the Android versions now. They want there to be only one version of it. This is George Lucas levels of uh, revisionist history. These games did not exist, also the fans hated them you can easily argue well those android ports were rubbish no great loss it is no great loss until a game disappears that you would consider to be a great loss and because of the infrastructure of digital gaming it has the potential to be great lost forever i actually quite like the the softer looking sprites but uh, I, it, it's not accessible can't have it uh, but you can still buy a a, a 3d remake version of the After Years also on the Apple Store right now. So you can play either the 3D remake version, or if you get the PSP, the 2D version. Like I said, it's 35 hours long, it reuses the same music, the same sprites, it draws a whole bunch of new ones, so you've got the surviving characters from the original game, and then a bunch of new characters. And it does have like a Force Awakens, grizzled old warriors coming back to help the young kids to tread a similar path. And I should love this. But watching um, several retrospectives on it, I'm like, so much of this is just member berries. And like, everything that they accuse The Force Awakens of being, remember this, remember this, remember this, as though it didn't have more to it yeah. than
1: that. Well, like I said, the, a lot of the battles seem to be literally just lifted from the previous game. Mm. And then they just change the text at the end.
0: And if you look at the actual events of what happens over those 12 episodes, it reads very much like fanfic or indeed a fan-made game which is uh, where you'll get in the hack websites someone has for example taken the Game Boy Advance version of Castlevania Aria of Sorrow and put Alucard from Symphony of the Night in there plus some GBA level Symphony of the Night rescoring and they recoloured the assets, so they've made a story with Alucard using the assets they've got available to them there. Mm. This is that on a legitimate scale. This is the Chrono Trigger, Crimson Echoes fan-made game that got a cease and desist from Square mere days before it launched, after politely asking permission for years of development and being roundly ignored. This was in 2009, and of course, Square definitely wanted to do something with Chrono Trigger. They do never you? did. No. no, they still haven't to this day. But, you know, if you look for, I don't know, Flames of Eternity on Google, you can probably find something to do with this project. Though, of course, a lot of Chrono Trigger fans absolutely hate it, but a lot of Final Fantasy IV fans absolutely hate the after years. And, and it is fan-made, because it's clearly made by people who love the original, but aren't necessarily as skilled in putting together a story that feels like it breaks new ground. Now, I haven't played it. I think I will eventually someday. In the same way, I'm going to play the 3D remake and then later I'll come back and try the after years. There's also an, an interim game that's like an hour long that bridges the two. And I'm glad they made that, but it also does feel a little vestigial, like Final Fantasy X2, which is not 12, but it's a sequel to Final Fantasy 10. And then there's Final Fantasy 13 2 and Final Fantasy 13 Lightning Returns forming a trilogy of Final Fantasy 13 games. And then there's all the Final Fantasy expanded universe of seven related games and now seemingly a consistently changing chronology of events. We didn't advise Final Fantasy 4 because it is the peak of quality on all of the qualities of the Final Fantasy series. But like I said at the very beginning, it's when Final Fantasy became the Final Fantasy that that won the hearts of the people. And this is why I say nine was the last of those. So really, it was actually a very short span, span of time from 1991 to the year 2000, 456789. Or if you're going by the story age, 4679. Or if you're going by the American numbering system, 2379.
1: That blue box dialogue text. Hmm is the marker for me of this era.
0: And that's not to say that there haven't been Final Fantasy style adventures in the classic style since then, but they've been mostly not in the main numbered series. I'd say 10 feels still like it's it's got the turn-based combat system but you you can swap out within battle on in a dynamic way so you can go right my party's unbalanced i need to bring in this person for this particular fight so effectively you can fight with your whole party and three of them will be out of danger but if the three at the front wipe then you you wipe uh but it actually feels more like there are successes in other departments moving it forwards rather than the actual named final fantasy series uh like i said bravely default uh, would be like to me the carrying forward the spirit of the early games sort of in the mechanic age but very much with one foot in the story age trying to give you characters that you care about and also because you only actually have four party members with bravely default you get to know them and they are versatile enough to change their jobs all the time not only with no penalty but effectively learning all kinds of things and getting better at them all the time makes everyone more versatile and then you get things like uh, Final Fantasy Brave Equius, which is this gorgeous-looking game that looks like a, a modern-day SNES graphics-type remastered adventure, much like uh, Romancing Saga 3 or uh, Octopath Traveller. It looks that gorgeous. And I started playing it, and it's only on mobile, and within 40 minutes, the main screen had turned into a fucking Las Vegas fruit machine, a one-armed bandit of microtransactions, funny money, collecting gems, do this and that, and it was like you are crushing what could have been a classic Final Fantasy adventure under this. Could I give you money for a whole complete version of this game that doesn't have flashing lights and, like, trying to hit my dopamine all the time like a Jack Russell fucking terrier bouncing in my eyeball? It's It made me sad, but it made me happy that things like Bravely Default and um, Radiant Historia were carrying this forward. School of Movies and School of Everything Else is funded by Patreon. A big thank you to everyone who just keeps on coming back every month. And a reminder that if times are tight, if you need to skip a month, skip out altogether just to make ends meet, that is absolutely fine. We'll be okay. Extra special thank you once again to our top-tier patrons. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finn Barnicol, Frankie Punsy, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jorn Clausen, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vehey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Pallmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert Michael Haskell Robbie Crowe Sarah Montgomery Timu Helleshaio Tim Rosensky Timothy Green Toby Skills Jungius Tom Painter Trey Contreras and Valencia Burns The last 20 minutes or so of music, by the way, is all from the Final Fantasy IV Celtic Moon album, arranged by Mare Breitnac. This hasn't been done for any other Final Fantasy game, so it remains Very special. back next time to talk about final fantasy 6 or rather i will with friend of the show maya sue reese and then we'll be back together the show after that talking about final fantasy 7. and i'm gonna leave you with some truly bracing orchestral final fantasy music from the distant worlds touring concerts composed by my favorite video game composer which puts him in the running for my favorite composer Nabuo Uematsu. I've been Alex Shaw.
1: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And school's out.